Today we're going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We are starting chapter 3 of our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. And um, it's already been, I think, in my uh, estimation of the study, it's already been very uh, profitable, at least in my own life. And I'm looking forward to spending this year in this book because this book covers a wide variety of uh, topics and issues. It's not necessarily a book simply about one thing. But it addresses a lot of things in regard to um, human life, like church life, Christian life, and, um, and how do we relate to the world, and how do we think rightly about things. And so we're going to read uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, and then uh, we'll pray and unpack it together. So this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church uh, at Corinth. So here we are. Are you ready? All right. Chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? And when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together, church. Father in heaven, I thank you uh, for meeting with us this day. I, I thank you for your spirit already at work in this place and among us. And Lord, I pray that now, uh, God, that you would teach us by your word, that you would guide my speech, and that you'd give us understanding by your Holy Spirit. So please, Lord, um, help us, stir us uh, to grow in you this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Super Bowl is next week, and uh, so we have the 49ers and the Chiefs. So who's our 49ers fans? Anybody? One? No? Are you puking, Bob, or is that what's going on? What about... (laughs) Bob's a Cowboys fan, if you didn't know. He's a little, he's a little disappointed this time of year. Anyways, uh, and, then, and then we have the Chiefs. Any Chiefs fans? No? Okay, a couple, a couple. All right, we'll see what's going on. Well, the, 49, the, the, the Super Bowl, um, like many football games, what we'll see is uh, a division on display. And already in the room, I've never felt so much tension just mentioning football teams. But, but uh, what you see in the stadium at the Super Bowl is it'll be divided by team colors, okay? The colors of the 49ers, the colors of the Chiefs, and, um, and there will be uh, bets made on the game, and there will be uh, friendships ruined as a result of the game, right? It, it is a, a hotly divided experience because in one place, in, uh, under one roof, I, I, I guess maybe it's a roof, maybe it's open field, but under one experience, 
are two uh, opposed parties. And they are against each other and uh, extremely loyal to their side of things. Now, now the church at Corinth was uh, doing the same thing, but with preachers. Okay, now that's kind of hard for us to understand, maybe, although we all can tend to, even in our culture now, with with the, the rise of, of streaming, and now we have we can see and watch the best preachers in the world that we begin to bend towards camps and create celebrities out of preachers. And that's what they were doing. They were making celebrities, putting up on a pedestal uh, these servants of God. And, and, and then, but it's not just that they had preference. Like there's nothing wrong with preference. I prefer this. I prefer that. It, they were allowing it to divide uh, their church. So you can, you can imagine coming to uh, the Corinthian church service, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this is how it was, but just imagine for me, one side of the church was all the Paul fans, and they're wearing their Paul jersey, and they got their Paul flag, and the other side of the church is all the Apollos people, and they're waving their Apollos flag, and they're shouting for Apollos, and it has caused them to, I don't associate with those Paul people, and they, I don't associate with those Apollos people, and it began to divide the church. And so Paul now is going to say to this church, uh, that's a sign of immaturity. That's a sign of immaturity. Um, And it's time to grow up. It's actually the title of the sermon is grow up, because it seems like that's the theme of these verses here. And um, what we're going to see here is three Uh, things about spiritual growth, three facts about spiritual growth uh, that were brought to us out of this text. And um, and Paul, you know, if you were here for week one of this series, you'll see he started the whole letter very gracious and kind and encouraging because he loves these people. He, He pastored this church. He planted the church and pastored it for a year and a half. And uh, then he went went on to pastor more churches, plant more churches. So He loves these people. But here in these verses, he says some pretty strong things um, to them, and we'll we'll see it as we we go through. So so the first thing about uh, spiritual growth is what we see here is the shortage of spiritual growth, the shortage or the need for spiritual growth. He starts in verse 1, But um, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So he says, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. Or maybe your translation says as carnal people. And so this raises the whole debate on whether you can even be a carnal Christian. Because some would say that you can be saved, that you could, you could receive salvation, you get your ticket to heaven, but it never changed your life and you're still saved, going to heaven. The others say, no, if you get saved, it will radically change your life and have an effect on all that you do. And so carnal Christians can't even exist. And so there's this debate here. Well, Paul seems to say that um, there is a place for carnal Christians. He says, uh, he addresses them. In verse 1, as brothers. So he's like, these are brothers and sisters in Christ. And then then when he says, you are infants 
in Christ. Paul, in other places in the New Testament, describes unbelievers as infants. But here he qualifies it by saying, you are infants in Christ. And so it seems as though there is room for um, a spectrum of people in the body of Christ. I want to, So this chalkboard up here, I don't have a chalkboard every week, but, um, but I want to uh, illustrate this for you via a diagram here or whatever you want to call it. So we have the natural um, person, and we have the spiritual The natural person is what we see in, in chapter 2, right at the end of chapter 2, in verse 14. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so he says, The natural person is someone who doesn't understand God, he doesn't understand, he's, he's not in Christ, he's not spiritual. But then in verse 15, he says, But the spiritual person, Judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. So he gives this contrast. The natural person is not in Christ. The spiritual person is in Christ. But he says, on, in, the, in the realm of you are saved, you are in Christ, you, are, you have infants, as we see here, or immature. And over on this side of things, you have the mature. And that's what he says in uh, the beginning of chapter 2 or verse 6, he says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. So he's like, so there's a spectrum here between the infants in Christ, your new believer, and the mature in Christ. You've been following the Lord for a long time and growing in that. But what he is saying here, what he's describing is uh, that uh, if we were to circle this and say this is what the Corinthian believers are doing. They have one foot in the spiritual. They've received Christ. And then they have one foot still in the natural world. And they're living predominantly as though they are natural while they are, in fact, saved. And so then uh, what he is describing as uh, infants in Christ um, is, I'm sorry, I'm going to use a different word for this to differentiate all of that. We're going to say uh, these are going to be carnal Christians. Okay? So, here's the spectrum. Carnal Christians are the ones who have become saved, but they are still living as though they are not saved. And um, they are acting... As, as infants. Now, what he's not saying is that these people are all natural all the time. If someone professes a faith in Christ, they say they've had a spiritual experience, but they have never, ever changed anything about their life, it's evidence that maybe they never knew Christ. So he's not saying these are all natural all the time. These are people who have had a life-changing experience with God but yet they haven't fully incorporated that reality into all of their life. Uh, whenever uh, I was getting, Cammie and I were getting married, 
we, um, our first apartment we rented uh, from a couple, and so we rented this 600-square-foot mother-in-law suite behind someone's house. I was part of their shop, and it was a nice little suite there, um, but it was, you know, out here in the country, in the woods. Well, my wife, she grew up in Long Beach. Now, I don't know, you might not consider that. I grew up in Long Beach also, but I've been out here for a while. She grew up in Long Beach. You might not consider that the city, but uh, people live next to each other in Long Beach, okay? And so, when we were getting ready to get married, and she knew we were going to come live out here in the middle of nowhere, she's like, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know, you know, how it's so dark out there. We're away from everything. It's too quiet. I don't know if we can, if I could live way out here in the country. And then what was amazing, though, the more time she spent out here, as we then began to look for our first house, she was saying stuff like, well, we got to buy a place that has a lot of land because uh, we can't be living next to people. I don't know how people live next to people. <laughs> right? Right? And what's amazing is that your location, whenever you change location, it begins to change you. And we see that, like, if you move from one region to another, one country to another, or just here, uh, the, the south here has experienced tremendous growth via people moving from, they're finally realizing that this is paradise down here in south Mississippi. We've been this hidden little secret. Some, some people have found it. And so we experience this wonderful growth of people who come from up north or uh, different places. And it's amazing to see how... Over time, their vocabulary begins to change, right? They used to say things like, you guys, hey, you guys, or you all. Who says you all? But you know what they will begin to do? Y'all, right? Hey, y'all. Howdy. How you doing? Y'all. And, and that, look, this is natural. This is what is supposed to happen. Over time, you begin to put off the, the ways of your old country, of your old place, of your old home, and you begin to adapt and adopt the ways and the language and the lifestyle of your new home. And, 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 but what he's saying is, um, whenever you come to Christ, you are, uh, have a new home and you are to adopt the things of Christ, but you guys have moved into the church but haven't adopted any of the ways of Jesus. This church, what he's saying here is that you're not growing out of it. You're not growing out of your old way of life, that when you join the family of God, it's supposed to change you. When you've come from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from the natural to the spiritual, it's supposed to change your life, but the church here in Corinth isn't changing. That means that something's wrong. They are still thinking like the world, not like Christ. How does this manifest itself in our thinking? Because we can begin to do the same thing. What he's addressing is, are you thinking like the world? Are you thinking like Christ? Are you filtering your decisions through worldly thinking or through Christian thinking? And so just take the topic of money, for instance. 
Money, the Bible would, would endorse the idea that money is, a, is to be a tool that is given to us by God and used to bless other people. We're, that's how we're to see money. That's why we, we don't think about money as, let me just get enough to where I can have a good life, but Lord, would you give me enough to supply the needs for my family and then the needs of other families uh, beyond me? Because it's a tool used to bless others. But then the world, what does the world see money as? They see it as a scoreboard. It's the scoreboard for who's winning in life. And do I have more money than they do? And where do I fall on this spectrum? And it's, it's whoever dies with the most toys wins. And so, um, so hoarding is good in the world. Whereas in Christianity... Um, hoarding would not be good because we are to be generous and open-handed with the things. Or, or think about beauty. How does the world see beauty? That they want you to exist in your 21-year-old body forever. We, we actually have a store called Forever 21 where it's people far beyond 21 trying to dress like they still are 21. And, and so we have uh, procedures and creams, and all, all these things that are going to make, make you forever young. Forever young, I want to be. Like, it's forever young. And that is in stark contrast to how Christ would view beauty. Because what Christ says about beauty in his word is that true beauty is found in a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in God's sight. That true beauty is found in character, and character is actually built through the ages, and so you get more beautiful the older you get in the eyes of God. Or let's take power, for instance. How does the world view power? They view it as something to get by all means, and then to use for selfish benefit to make my life better, to give me more influence and power and comfort. And so it's to benefit me and my immediate family and my best friends. And so it is sometimes uh, taking advantage of people to prop up myself, whereas in the church, power and leadership is used to lay down your life to serve others. Those in the greatest positions of authority should be in the greatest positions of servanthood and to benefit the good of others, not yourself. We, if we were to look at leadership and power in the church, we should look how Jesus used his power and his leadership. What did he do? He died. He was crucified to himself for the good and to give life to others. And so the, the, the point here is that we should be growing in Christ-likeness. We should be progressing imperfectly, but progressively becoming more mature in Christ and growing in our ability to take all of life and all of my thinking and begin to conform it to what would Christ think, filter it through what does the Bible say, and is, is what I'm thinking about, the decision I'm making, is this based on worldly principles or biblical principles. There's a Bible teacher online named Mike Winger, and his, his kind of tagline is to think biblically about everything. That's the goal, 
And that's what he's wanting. Um, but he's saying, but you've, you've gotten stuck. And um, so you're infants in Christ. Now, he's, he's, not, he's not making fun of them. He's not saying this like sarcastically, like you big babies. He's not saying that. He's saying this very seriously and somberly. You guys are still infants. You're not supposed to be infants. But you are. Babies are cute. Babies are adorable, right? We love babies. Or, or at least you love to hold babies and then give them back. Here, I don't want to have to go through a night with this baby, but here you go. So babies are cute and adorable and, and sweet, right? But, but there's, there's nothing wrong with being a baby. But whenever you're 16 years old and you're still acting like a baby, that is an indication that something is grossly wrong. Developmentally, something's wrong. Maturity-wise, something's wrong. Something is wrong. If you have a teenager who's still behaving and thinking and acting like a baby, you take them to the doctor, figure out what's wrong. What are we going to do? So there's nothing wrong with being a baby, but if there's, it's something wrong staying a baby. All of our desires for our kids to grow and mature, begin to walk and talk and, and then sit down and be quiet, okay? Like we want them to, we want to learn all those things. So he's not rebuking new believers for not behaving like mature believers. So don't get this. If you're new in Christ, if you've just recently come to the Lord, he's not rebuking you for not knowing everything. It's okay for you to be new in Christ, for you to be an infant. Nothing wrong with that. What he is rebuking here is old Christians who have, who have been in Christ for a long time who are still acting as new believers. And what we see is that age does not equal maturity. I've been following Christ for 20 years. That doesn't always mean anything. Because you can, you can, you can be living year one over 20 times and never actually progressing in maturity. That's also why you see there's young people who are incredibly mature. And it's because they have devoted themselves to pursuing Christ's likeness in all of their life and have rapidly matured. Um, Hebrews 5, 11 through 14 um, is, a, is a related passage, not speaking necessarily to the same church, but the same idea. He says, about this we um, have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For uh, though by the time you ought to be teachers, by this time you ought to be teachers, and you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, and those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Don't you love that? Okay, so what he's saying here is, I have much to say for you, with you. I wanted to tell you a lot of good, deep, rich things, but I can't even talk to you like that because I've got, still got to start back at, at page one with you. And he says, how do we get mature? He says, they, they are trained by the constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You're constantly practicing thinking like Christ putting off the thinking of the world. He actually says in verse 2, he says, So I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you are not ready for it, and even now you are not ready. So he said, I, I, I fed you with milk, 
not with solid food. So then we have to say, what is the milk? What is the milk? Um, Well, the milk, uh, he actually tells us in chapter 2, verse 2, what he was teaching them. Chapter 2, verse 2, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what he's giving them is the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, this is actually a very meaty topic. He's giving them the gospel and Christ crucified, but they didn't see it as that deep. He's not saying that there's two different sets of doctrines, that we have the little baby doctrines for for the people who are infants in Christ, and we have the, the big mature doctrines that you graduate to whenever you get older in Christ. He's not saying that there's different doctrines or that there's a higher level of truth and a lower level of truth. He's saying there's the truth, but uh, the depth in which we go uh, varies. We teach the same doctrines to our kids in the kids' ministry as we do here to the adults in adult ministry. We're not teaching them different stuff. They're teaching the same doctrines of Christianity in the kids' ministry as we are here. It's that we are communicating them differently. We're using different language so that things can be understood it's the difference is how we communicate these truths. To a child, we might simplify the language, use the language that they understand, use illustration and word picture and analogy to help them grasp some of these concepts, um, the, the basic truths of Christianity. Whereas in adults, um, we can speak more plainly because we have an established vocabulary. I remember I was some, a young person uh, asked me a question at one of our groups one night at, on Wednesday night, and I was explaining to them the truth of this, whatever they asked about, and another adult at the table says, well, that's pretty, that's pretty big language. Like, you think, you think they quite understand what propitiation means? I was like, oh, I hadn't even thought about that, right? <laughs> and so, but you have to adapt your language for them to understand what you are saying. It's kind of like whenever Rory... My daughter, um, there was one day we were driving home through the, the back uh, streets and we were listening to music on Spotify and all of a sudden this, the music cut out. And, um, and she said, oh, what happened? And I said, oh, it's buffering. And she said, what is, what is buffering? And I said, oh, that's whenever the internet connection is, is not so strong. We don't have such strong signal. She's like, well, what's the internet? It's like... Well, let me ask you, how do you describe internet? How do, you, how, how do you explain the internet? I said, it's magic. I don't know. Okay? We don't know. Who knows? No, no, no. So I tried to explain the best I could using other things that she could understand to get the grasp, the idea broadly of the internet. But the point is, I could talk about the internet, and you all know what I'm talking about. But to a child, we have to adapt it, simplify it, for them to understand the things that we take as basic truths. Um, With mature Christians, you already have an established vocabulary of Christian doctrine without needing to reference uh, and explain. And, you know, there's sometimes where I'll be having a conversation with uh, Jesse McBride or with Jared here, 
and we'll be talking, and we will just reference details about Old Testament stories to ask a question, and the other one never says, what are you talking about? And I had that realization recently as, as we were just having this conversation. Just started out of nowhere, and we just started talking about, you know, what do you think about the whatever it was? And it was just some obscure detail about a story in the Bible. But we both knew exactly what we were talking about. We were both on the same page because we had this established understanding and neither of us had to explain the context or what we were talking about. And um, that seems to be, it's not so much what you're explaining as, as much as it, how you are explaining it. And so he's like, I should be able to talk to you like you're mature, like you know God and the Bible and these doctrines, but I, I've got to come back and explain to you what the internet is. I've got to come and explain to you the simple doctrines of Christianity. And so it's the same doctrine, but, but levels of communication and then levels of understanding. Levels of understanding. For instance, the doctrine of salvation. Uh, a new believer might say, okay, the doctrine of salvation, that's Christ died for my sin. Amen. That is true. That is the essential understanding of the doctrine of salvation. But if you talk to someone who, who might have been a little more uh, further along in their walk with Christ, they might begin to talk about election and justification and sanctification and glorification, all those vocations, right? They, they might begin to describe all these things. These, there's more depth to the doctrine. They're both true, but there's different level of depth of understanding. And the church at Corinth uh, seems to have gotten bored with the gospel. They, 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 they want Paul to, to move into some deeper things. We got the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. I get that. Let's move on, Paul, to deeper things. And they failed to realize that you, you don't graduate the gospel. You go deeper into it. Christian maturity is moving deeper into what we already know, not moving past what we already know. There's more to know in what you know. And they're viewing the gospel as milk. And their viewing the gospel as milk reveals that they're only ready for milk. Because the mature, the longer you're in Christ, the longer you can look back at the gospel of Christ and see more depth and more richness and more beauty and more application in how the gospel affects every aspect of our lives. You go deeper into it. That's what Christian maturity is. So he says, you're not ready for it. You are not ready. Verse 2, I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now, you're not ready. It seems like he's indicating that you're responsible for your spiritual growth. That there is some personal responsibility for growing spiritually. They were so full of the junk food of the world that they had no appetite for the solid food of the gospel, of the truth. And so, there's a shortage of spiritual growth. He looks at the church at Corinth. He says, you're all still babies when you should be mature and you should give yourself to growing in 
the likeness of Christ. Second is the stunting of spiritual growth. The stunting. So there, there's no spiritual growth. There's the need for it. There's a shortage. But, but now there's the stunting of spiritual growth. Now, when I was a kid, I was told that coffee would stunt my growth. Okay? And, um, and hey, I don't know if you knew this. It's true. I was on the trajectory to be 6'5", until I drank coffee. And uh, um, here, it must only work with vertical growth, though, uh, because I drink a lot of coffee. And if it was true that it stunts your growth, I should be like 125 pounds, the amount of coffee that I drink. Like, there are some things that do really stunt your growth. Maybe coffee does, maybe it doesn't, but... Um, <laughs> Maybe that's just what you told kids so that they didn't get all, you know, wired on coffee. You're going to stay that short your whole life. Um, We don't want that. Anyways, but there are some things that actually stunt your growth as a human being. One of them is poor nutrition. That poor nutrition um, can actually stunt your growth. And that's what's happening at the, the church at Corinth. That they are feeding on the wrong things. They have poor nutrition uh, in the things of God, and it has stunted their growth because they're feeding on the wrong things. Look at verse 3. He says, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? He says you're still of the flesh. Now, I just want to point out, though, in all of this, He doesn't say that they are of the flesh. He says, I have to speak to you as of the flesh. He's like, you are in Christ, but I have to speak to you as you are of the flesh because that's how you're living and thinking. Um, But here he says, he says, you're still this way. There should have been progress, but something has stunted your growth. You're staying right here. He says, what is stunting your growth? Well, it's this this jealousy and strife and division that have cultivated, you've cultivated in the church. You've allowed divisions to arise in in the church. He says, verse 4, when one says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Paulos, are you not being merely a human? I follow Paul, I follow Paulos. He talked, he referenced some more preachers earlier in the book, but let's just take these two because... The Apostle Paul was the one who started the church. He was the founding pastor of, uh, of the church, um, and he stayed there a while. Um, but then he, he moved on, and, and Apollos took over the church. So Apollos comes in after the Apostle Paul. Imagine being the successor for the Apostle Paul. And, um, and look, I've, I've come taken over a church that was pastored by a previous pastor who was here for a long time, who is well-loved, um, I loved him personally. You know, I grew up under his teaching, all of that. So, so I, I have somewhat relation to what it looks like to, to come into a position where someone else who is older and mature and, and, and different, very different, and then you come in, and you know what happens is, is people just begin to compare you to the other guy. And that's what's happening in their church, the church at Corinth. Some are saying, I, I really, I liked Paul. I, um, Paulus doesn't teach like Paul did. 
Apollos, he doesn't go as deep as Paul did. Apollos doesn't visit us like Paul did. He doesn't, Apollos doesn't pray like, you remember how Paul used to pray? Paul, Paul, Paul used to pray. He used to just put his hanky on people and people would be healed. Apollos doesn't do that at all. I miss Paul. I'm going to be team Paul. When there's a whole other camp, it's like, well, I like Apollos. I like this new guy. He's young. He's fire. He's energetic. He's got fresh vision. He's charismatic. The church is growing. I like this guy. He sings great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's what it is. He's full of, of vision and vigor. Like, I like this. And so they, what they were doing was they were, but, but again, it wasn't simple preference. They were allowing this to actually divide their fellowship. I'm not going to associate with those people if they believe that. I can't believe you would think that. I can't believe you would believe that. I can't believe you'd follow them. Um, uh, they were letting it divide uh, the church. In verse 3, he says, are, are you not behaving in only a human way? This is not merely human, verse 4 says. You're not acting merely human You might say, how am I supposed to behave? <laughs> am I not a human? Am I not a man or a woman? Like, how, how should I behave, Paul? Well, the, the, this verse here, this language here, um, are you not behaving as a, a human way, is literally walking according to man. That you're guided by secular norms. So... You're, you're walking according to man. You're walking according to the natural person. You're guided by the secular, worldly thinking. Are you not acting like mere humans? Because we are no longer mere humans. We are now spiritual people in Christ. Now John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He became right to become children of God. That a child of God is something you become when you place your faith in Christ. I want you to know this. Not everyone, not every human is a child of God. Not everyone is a child of God simply because we're all created in the image of God. Created in the Imago Dei, the image of God is different than being a child of God. And, and being a child of God is not something that you can claim. It's something that is given you. You think you've got to wonder, why do you think the rest of the world is that we're all children of God? They want to claim the status of being a child of God without believing in the name of the child of God. And so, so we say, we're adopted into the family of God and considered become a right of the children of God by belief in his name. Galatians 5.16, so, so the child of God, so now we're to behave like children of God, not like children of men. And then Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So now we are supposed to walk by the Spirit. We're supposed to be led by the Spirit, and then we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That we're putting off the desires of the flesh and progressing in our love for the things of the Spirit. Their problem was, the thing that was stunting their spiritual growth was that they were looking to worldly wisdom um, to guide them through life. When they had a problem, when they had a decision, when they wanted to grow. I mean, we have, we have an inherent desire to grow, don't we? Most of us. 
We want to grow in physically, in our health. We want to grow intellectually, in our understanding, in our knowledge, and we pursue those things. We want to grow relationally. Like, we want to grow as people. There's no, but, like, uh, self-help books sell millions of copies every year. Self-help courses, millions and millions and millions of courses sold because we have a desire to help ourselves, to grow. And what he's saying is there's nothing wrong with your desire to grow. The, the thing that's wrong is that you're looking to the wisdom of the world to get there when you should be looking to the wisdom of God for spiritual growth. And so what are you feeding on? Have you been formed more by the culture around you than by the gospel? Have you been formed more by the culture around you than by the gospel? Finally, last point is this, the source of spiritual growth. So there's a shortage, they're immature, they're stunting it because of their divisions and, and elevating pastors as celebrities. They're feeding on the wrong stuff, so what is the right stuff? Well, the source of spiritual growth, verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So he says here, you're viewing um, preachers, ministers as celebrities when they're servants. We're simply servants. We're servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned, the God just chooses who he wants to give these gifts to, how he wants to use different people. He calls and he equips and he uses us. And he says, we're servants who you believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So in the previous verses, he was using the imagery of feeding, milk and solid food. Now he's switching to this farming language, planting and watering and harvesting growth. And um, that would have been very natural in their agricultural society. Because here's what every farmer knows is that um, you can plant the seed, you can get the soil ready, you can get it all, you can create as everything that you have control over, you can make as great as you possibly can, but then you got to pray that God sends the rain. I think we're reminded of that, how like this past summer, how we had a drought. And it's like, now we're doing without things, and we're like, Where, why is that out of the grocery store anymore? Well, it's because the drought. Wait, as a society, we're still dependent on rain? yes. Yes, and so you can do everything you can do, but if God doesn't send the rain, things don't grow. So he says, I planted Apollos water. We're just gardeners in the, in the, at the farm doing different roles. He planted the church. Apollos came and he watered the church. He did his part. There's doing different parts, but God gave the growth. The idea here is that God is the source of spiritual growth. God's the one who gives it. I don't know how many... Uh, church growth emails I've been a part of that talks about all the secrets and things that you're doing and how to, you know, all this stuff about how to grow your church, how to break the 100 barrier, how to break the 200 barrier, how to break the 300 barrier. And let me give you the secrets to things you're doing and not doing so that you can grow your church. It's like, I'm not the one who grows my church. I'm not responsible for growing my church. I'm not going to go to the heaven and God say, well, why didn't you get it to 300? Why didn't you grow your church? Um, he's going to say, what did you do with what I gave you? Were you faithful to work as I have equipped you? Were you a faithful laborer in the mission of God? That's what it's going to be. 
And so we do what we're supposed to do. We do everything in our power to be as faithful to the calling God has equipped us for. And then God, leave the results to God. God is the one who gives the growth. And so if he's the source of spiritual growth, I need to go to him to grow spiritually. Verse 7, he says, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. I love that. We're nothing. I know you're, you're elevating, you're putting us on a pedestal, you're acting like we're celebrities. We're nothing. He who plants, he who waters are nothing. Only God who gives the growth. If you go to the dentist, you have a sore tooth, and you go to the dentist, and maybe you have to do a filling or a root canal or something of that nature. The, the, you sit down in the dentist chair. The, he has all these, all these instruments right next to him, okay? So he has the little pick, you know, and then he just jabs in your gums. And, and so you got the little pick, and you have, the, you have the, the, I don't know, what else does the dentist have? <laughs> the pick, and you have the, the drill. You know, the little drill thing. You have those contraptions that hold your lips open that make you look so funny that we created a board game out of them. Right? You know that? And, and, and so it makes you wonder, how long did dentists just sit there and giggle at us? How silly we look with our mouths just wide open. Anyways, and then, and then you have that, the sucker. That's what I was thinking about, that sucker. Isn't that the, I love the sucker. And then, and then you have that little, bitty mirror on a stick. Isn't that cool? Why don't they sell those? Do they sell those? Oh, okay. Well, I just need to get one then. Um, haven't you ever wondered what the back of your mouth looks like? You know, you stick that back there. It's gonna be... So they have all these tools they use. They each, they each have a specific role to play in fixing your mouth. But, but whenever you get up from the dentist chair, you don't stand up and look at all the tools on the tray and say, thank you. I feel so much better. The pain is gone. I appreciate you so much. No, that's so silly. You go to the dentist and you say, thank you. Thank you so much. Because the tools were just instruments in the hands of a dentist. That's what, he's like. That's what you're doing with us. We're just instruments. We're just mouthpieces for God. It's, we're just, it's, God's the one who's doing it. Anything good that happens comes from God. Or this idea of being servants through whom you believed is the idea of being a waiter. We're just, we're just the waiter. We, we are just here to serve to you what the chef has prepared. And so we bring out what the, what you, what the chef has prepared, we bring it to you. And if you have an amazing meal, what do you do? You look to the server, the waiter, and you say, thank you, this meal was amazing. And you know what they say? You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. What? You're the waiter. Go tell the chef, right? <laughs> you did nothing. You, you delivered it. You just delivered what the chef prepared. And that's what he's saying is that we are just waiters. We're just delivering you the meal of the word of God. We're just giving you what God has prepared. And God's the one who makes it grow. And God's the one who nourishes us through it. That we are just servants. We are just instruments through whom you believed. Verse 8, he says, He who plants and he who waters are one, and each receives wages according to his labor. I love that he's saying, look, he who plants and he who waters, he's like, the servants of Christ, we're united. Like me and Apollos, we're united. We're not on different teams, and so neither should you be. We're not opposing one another. We're on the same team. You guys shouldn't be opposing one another. This is silly. 
That's why I find it interesting whenever, I always love to do this, whenever someone you know, has, has left our church and I bump into them or, or someone who you know, goes to a different church or whatever, and I say, what church are you going to? And they, and they tell me and I say, oh, I love that pastor. He's a great guy. I like me where it's good friends. Like somehow we're going to pin each other against each other. But that's one of the benefits to being friends with a lot of the pastors in the community is you can leave here, go somewhere else. You're going to have a hard time getting us to talk bad about each other because we love each other. We're on the same team. We're one. We're united. And he's like, you shouldn't be divided either. Don't let this divide you. But verse 8, he says, each one will receive his wages according to his labor. You will be rewarded not according to your fruit, but according to your labor. God's the one who makes things grow. He determines the fruit. He gives the growth, but you must labor in planting and watering. That working for the Lord is work. It's labor. Uh, one theologian said this, the faithful laborous minister or missionary who labors in obscurity and without apparent fruit will meet a reward far beyond that of those who with less self-denial and effort are made the instruments of great results. <laughs> what he's saying is like, sometimes you labor your entire life serving the Lord and don't see much fruit at all. The prophet Jeremiah was like this. Didn't see any converts. But he was faithful to the Lord, faithful to what God called him to do. And you will be rewarded greatly for your labor. Whereas someone else who does far less, but somehow, just by God's grace, just is, is, blows up in growth, he's like, your reward will be proportionate to your labor. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. We are God's fellow workers. Don't think about this as like me and God are buddies. We're the same. We're, on the, we're peers, right? We're co-workers. Um, no, you think about this as um, we, Paul and Apollos, we, Paul and Apollos, are fellow workers that belong to God. So we, Paul and Apollos, are God's fellow workers, we're fellow workers who belong to God. That God is like the owner of the farm. And we are the laborers who he has hired to work in his garden. And so we're not peers. We are working for him. And he is empowering us and equipping us to then work and plant and water in his garden. Um, I mean, this gets, kind of brings up the idea that, like, why does God even use us? Because God is self-sufficient. God, God needs nothing. That means God needs nothing. Um, he is in need of no one or anything. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need oxygen. He's not dependent or reliant on anything outside of himself, that he is self-sufficient. So why does God use us in his mission? Why does he use this? Because it seems like it's the most inefficient way to get things done. Working with us. Because I think we could probably imagine that God could accomplish his mission in any way that he chose. Like he's building this thing. He could have said, okay, the way I'm going to save the world is I'm going to personally reveal myself to every person who I want saved and say, hey, I'm real, I'm God. Believe in me. And they would all, because they had this personal bodily revelation of God, they would all believe. God could allow, you know, a brick to fall out of the sky with a message from heaven. 
and, and share his, God could send angels to do his work. Why, why does God choose to use us? I found it, this comes out in, in a story in the New Testament where, where God sends an angel to Peter that says, go to Cornelius' house and share the gospel with him. God sends an angel to Cornelius and says, go send a messenger to get a hold of Peter. He's got a message for you. Why didn't God use the angel to deliver the message? The angel just says, go find the messenger. Go find the person who's going to tell you the message. So why does God use us? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Um, I think there's a couple reasons, and one of them is this, that he wants to share the joy with his children. He wants to share in the joy of his mission with his children. But sometimes you're willing to do things less efficiently to share the joy with your children. Uh, the, the, this past Christmas, after Christmas, um, my family came to, to take down all the Christmas trees after Christmas here at the church. And so we have our three-year-old twin boys and Rory's here. And so we pack up these big trees in these bags and we put them on these carts to go and take them out to the shed. And Riggs, uh, one of my boys, he says, I'll help you, Daddy, I'll help you, Daddy. And, and so he grabbed a hold of the cart to push this cart with all these trees on it out to the shed. And you know the thing is that um, it actually made it a little slower, <laughs> right? <laughs> it made it a little more difficult, right? Um, but it was worth it just to see the expression of joy in his face helping daddy, right? And I think that the father heart of God is that towards, I could do all this without you guys. I don't, it would be a lot more efficient if I did it without you. But I want to share in the joy of my joy with you in this work together. Um, actually, John 15, 11 says, these things I have spoken to you. And I was referring to abiding in Christ, but he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That God is for your joy. And one of the means for which he imparts his joy to you is through serving him on mission. I think also probably the more broad reason for God's uh, including us in this mission is that it brings more glory um, to God when he does amazing things with weak people. We heard this earlier that he uses the, the weak things to shame the strong the low things, the despised things, to bring to nothing the things that are. And there's something about God using us weak, finite, little people to do incredible, eternal work that brings the most glory to him in the end. Um, and if God is the source of our spiritual growth, um, then uh, he can use anyone to teach us. I'm going to have to uh, skip to the end here, but healthy things grow. Healthy things grow. And he's like, look, you guys are in need of spiritual growth. There's a shortage, and you've stunted it with how you're living, your behavior, what you're pursuing. 
Um, God is the source of spiritual growth and healthy things grow. Now, the danger in saying something like healthy things grow is that then we begin to judge everything by their growth. And if a church is not up to the right all the time, then it's not healthy. And if a person is not up to the right all the time in their spiritual maturity, then they're not healthy. And, And that's not quite true because we have to understand that in the realm of spiritual growth, that there are seasons for planting. There are some years, there are planting years, and there's some years that are watering years. And then, listen to this, there's some years that are just waiting years. And then there's other years of growth and harvest. And I think we maybe judge fruitfulness based on too short of a time frame. Whenever God's working over our lifetime working over the eternity. And so be careful how you judge something's faithfulness based merely on temporary fruitfulness when they might be in a season of waiting. They're faithful, they're laboring, they're planting, they're watering, and there will be a day where God gives them the growth. Um, Are you growing spiritually? Or has your growth been stunted by worldly thinking? 2 Peter 3.18 says this, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now uh, and to the day of eternity. Amen. That we should pursue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But how do we grow spiritually? If God is the source of our growth, we must connect to him to grow. John 15 uh, describes what this looks like where he says in verse 4 and 5, Abide in me. Jesus speaking, abide in me, remain in me, dwell in me, live in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So abide in Christ, that's the point. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word to us, Lord. It is... um, It is milk to our souls, and it is bread, Lord, the bread of life. I thank you that you feed us through your word. And, Lord, I pray, God, that we would be people, that that you would even maybe uh, challenge our thinking and help us to see where we are on our our, level of growth and maturity, God. And, Lord, that that there would be no condemnation for those who are new in Christ for, for exactly where they are. But for those of us, Lord, that have stunted our growth through worldly thinking, that you would challenge us and convict us today to allow us to pursue the mind of Christ in all that we do. Lord, I pray that even through this message that you'd bring um, many to faith in Christ, that they would become, move from the natural to the spiritual and experience eternal life in Jesus Christ. Father, we love you and we pray all these things in your name. Amen.